0: I'm a fool. I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. You just said something. Think, 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 think. All right, we're back and hopefully have learned a lesson. So, I'm Michael. Nothing's making sense today, and I'm here to tell you that God is sovereign, regardless of the world around you. And when I say nothing is making sense today, it's because I'm still trying to get what we are going to look at today wrapped around my brain and. The reason I say that is because we are in Second Kings, and when I say that, I think I've learned my lesson, my plan is, ha, 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 that we're going to try to get through about 12 or so chapters of Second Kings. Now that I've said that out loud, I'll either get through two, or I'll get through all 12 in five minutes, and then, you know, wonder what went wrong and have to redo all of this. So, if you're listening to this and ain't rambling, it's because I actually got through the 12 chapters now. Why do I say this is where it gets difficult? Because uh, history of Israel in Kings is, it requires a PhD in history some days, it feels like, to make sense of it. Almost every brain cell to keep, keep track of who's where and how and why. I mean, I literally have a chart that I've made in front of me, and I'm still struggling. So that's going to be the goal to try to make sense of this, and to try to not have my brains fall out of my head, I make you no promises. Now, in case you are new here, we are trying to think through Scripture from a, this is going to sound redundant, from a biblical perspective, and you're going, well, if I'm reading my Bible, aren't I already thinking with a biblical, pers- biblical perspective? Maybe, maybe not. In the coming weeks, we'll have some articles that we're going to go through, hopefully Lou and I, to kind of explain to you how you can think through the Bible without thinking biblically. So that is going to be our goal, is as we are doing this, I play with the audio settings a little bit. As we're doing this, we're trying to make sense of it from a biblical perspective, allowing the Bible to inform me, even in the midst of the chaos that I am seeing in the Bible. So, when we left First Kings, we left with the death of Ahab, the judgment upon Israel, the prophet Elijah running around here, tither and yon, and you would think that as the judgment has come down, as the faithful prophet of God has been proven, you try to say that three times fast, as the people and the Royal families of Israel and Judah have seen the work of God in action. You would think that somebody in all of this would be like, you know, maybe it's time we do things Yahweh's way. Maybe it's time we forsake ourselves, get back to this whole Moses and David thing, and actually walk like we're supposed to. And if you are thinking that is what should go on, (laughs) you would be wrong. Because that's not what happens. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. So, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. Yeah, we've learned a lot here from Dad, haven't we? But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet... I'm sorry, I just lost my spot. Um, That's what happens when you don't have your text big enough. Yeah, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. Now, if we are in the reign of Ahaziah, then we are... We are somewhere in the middle of the 9th century. The reason I can say that is because we know that Jehoram, son of Ahaziah, becomes king around 852 and rules to about 841. I'm going to say about for all of these because when you get into the history, it depends on which dating system and uh, calendrical system, if that's not a word, it is now, system that you utilize. So the one that I'm going to utilize says 852 to 841. Now... If you're wondering that this is a little bit of deja vu, then you would be right. The same thing happened in 1 Kings 14, where we hid ourselves to try to get a favorable word from the Lord. This time, we're not even trying to hide to get a favorable word. We're just moving along like Yahweh hasn't killed Ahab, hasn't promised judgment, hasn't judged the nation by not giving it rain, hasn't shown victory in battle. I mean, we're going to act like Yahweh has done none of these things. And try to figure out what we should do based on the idolatry that is around us. So you get to 2 Kings 2. Elijah is going to be taken up. Elisha is granted a double portion of the spirit that was upon Elijah. Meaning he is now the prophet. He is the one who will carry the message of Yahweh. Perform the mighty works and deeds of Yahweh on behalf of the people. And attempt to lead this people from a spiritual perspective. Why are we seeing this? Well we mentioned as we we're going from samuel that's, that, that through the book of first samuel that samuel is a transitional figure He transitions from the time of the judges, where God is raising up the leader when it is necessary because of people's sins. In other words, you're supposed to have priests and high priests who are teaching, discipling, sacrificing, and doing the work of Yahweh, instructing the people. And the people are supposed to be faithful to this, understanding that Yahweh is their Savior, and He is the one who upholds them. Therefore, they are obedient and following along. When they don't do this, God brings about judgment, but also because He is Savior— brings about their redemption by raising up a judge and delivering the people. We transition from that with Samuel as the last judge, but as the high priest, also kind of acting as a de facto king. He leads us to the kingdom, where we have Saul and David, Solomon, and that whole line. Wherein, now you have a military leader separated from the religious function, sort of. And by that, it was always supposed to be separated. The priests were always supposed to be about the priestly duty. Samuel, following in the line of what had happened with Eli and what had happened with prior priests, was not supposed to be the military leader. He was supposed to be a spiritual leader, and you see that with Samuel when he refuses to go into battle with the Israelites, but instead prays and offers sacrifice. What you're seeing now is with the military leaders usurping then the role of worship in the priesthood, By engaging in idolatry, by not submitting to God, by not offering the sacrifices, by not doing the things that they're supposed to be doing, they are turning away from God, so God is now utilizing another messenger. He is sending a prophet who will bring forth Yahweh's message, and the people are supposed to then answer to God via the prophet that's the call from Elijah. Why do you, why do you, you know, waffle between two decisions here? It's when he's arguing on Mount Carmel. Choose Yahweh because he is God. So Elijah's up. Elisha is now in. You get the proof of that at the end of the chapter. The bears kill the people who are mocking him. He, uh, he cures the waters of Jericho. So you get proof of what is going on. Now, Jehoram, "...the son of Ahab became king over Israel at Samaria in the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned twelve years." This is your 852-841. to "...he did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them." What you've got is, I'm not completely evil like Ahab and Jezebel, but I'm still not good. What does this result in? Thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Huh? You weren't expecting me to read that, were you? You were expecting to see some judgment. Yes, you were. It's okay. You wanted some judgment, and I was right there with you. Remember what we've got going on, that the Creator, Preserver of His people, is both Savior and Judge, and He preserves people. Remember, this was our lesson going all the way back to the work of Cain and his offspring. He preserves people both for salvation and for judgment, and right now, He is doing both because, as we learned with Elijah, there are, what, 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal? It's not time to wipe out this nation yet. It's time to disciple. It's time to demonstrate the patience of God. There's going to be plenty of time to demonstrate the power of God in his judgment. Now it's time to demonstrate his long-suffering to his faithful people, to show them that God is good and that he endures sinful people. Mocking, scorning his law, and that because of what he has promised, he will uphold, even if it means upholding a sinful, rebellious people. Because remember, we're still waiting on fulfillment here. We're still waiting on a seed from the woman to crush the serpent. Don't forget about that. We're still waiting on the faithful ruler to come from Judah. We are still waiting on the prophet like Moses, who knows God face to face, who speaks with the authority of God, who operates in the power of God. This is what Elijah and Elisha are a picture of. Israel, and to a lesser extent Judah, have gone astray. They have refused to continue to walk in the ways of Yahweh. Therefore... The lesson needs to be that no, it is in Yahweh that there is power because he is creator, savior, and judge. It is in Yahweh that there is hope, that there is sanctification. It is in Yahweh that there is patience and mercy. And you see that with the work of Elijah and now with the work of Elisha. So he's bad, but he's not terrible bad. I mean, he's not good, but he's, you know, he's not horrendous. So God is going to... Deliver them. Why? To prove what? That's what these little chapters are about. Second Kings 4. You've got the widow's oil. It gets multiplied. You get the Shunammite woman who has a son, who dies, and then is raised by Elisha. You have Elisha then curing the poisonous stew that is killing people. Why are all of these things back to back to back in this chapter? You have chapter five, I'm sorry, in this chapter in the beginning of this book. You have chapter five, where Naaman is healed. Now this is where you kind of get your punchline. And I think you could argue that this is the punchline of Second Kings. It's in verse 15 here. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, this is Naaman after he's been healed of his leprosy, and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the man of God, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. See, that's the punchline that's going on here. Naaman, mighty, man of valor, accomplisher, great warrior, who cannot heal himself. So he is given a task by God. Do this, you'll be healed. The this is, go dunk yourself in that dirty, rotten Jordan River seven times. How's that going to heal leprosy? Well, it's not. It's not even a good river. It's not even a clean river. It's a slow, meandering stream. If you're, a, if you're a Western Hemisphere person, think the Mississippi. You know, It's not exactly what you would look at and call the pristine mountain waters of whatever. And yet he's healed. To teach him what? That God heals. God is the accomplisher. God is the Savior. Not you. Well, this, this deity has now healed me. I should offer something. I should, I should give him a gift for his great work. No. No, you shouldn't, and God will take none of it because you don't pay God for his salvation. He redeems you because of his mercy, grace, and love, because he is the Savior, and he is the Almighty, and you are not. You cannot pay, therefore you will not pay. Instead, what you should do is honor, worship, and serve, be sanctified, That is your payment, or as Romans would put it, your spiritual act of service. Why? Because you recognize him now as creator, savior, and sustainer who is faithful to his promises and will accomplish these things. Therefore, you seek to walk in his ways. That's why these works are back to back to back. God demonstrating this for Israel. God demonstrating this for the Shunammite woman. God demonstrating this for the widow. God demonstrating this for Naaman. God demonstrating all of these things so that Israel might see and know who he is and what he is doing. And that's why this continues. You get the floating axe head. You get war. I love this. War with Aram. And you get this picture of what's going on in the war room of Aram. And then you get, When the attendant of the man of God had risen has, had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. In other words, the Aramites have come to get Elisha. Because if we can get rid of Elisha, we might be able to get rid of this Yahweh character. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man who you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. In other words, he delivered the enemies of Israel right into the capital city of Israel by the power of God to demonstrate who is the authority here. And then he wouldn't let him kill them because this isn't a war. This is a demonstration. This is a lesson to Israel that, no, this is not about you killing Aramites and you conquering territory and you securing your throne. This is about you worshiping and following after God. And if you attempt to make this about anything else, you have missed it and you have missed it entirely. And guess what they did? They missed it entirely. So you get the siege. You get the Israelites resorting to cannibalism because they've got nothing else. They want to kill Elisha because it's somehow Elisha's fault that they're wicked, sinful people who won't follow God. Yeah, see how that works. And you get the promise from Elisha about food. So what happens? These four lepers go walking into the Aramean camps. Like, yeah, hey, we're dying anyway. We might as well go see if they'll give us some food and be merciful. What's the worst thing that happens? They kill us and we don't starve to death? Win. And God makes four lepers stumbling into camp sound like a mighty army, so the Arameans flee and run away. In other words, God delivers his people. By what means? Insane means from a worldly perspective, demonstrating what again to Israel? That he is the one who upholds and accomplishes all of these things. So, you get to chapter 8. You get the good work from Jehoram, so we're still in that that 840s time frame. You get the sickness of Ben-Hadad and Elisha going to see Hazael. Now, this is fun because what you end up getting is Elisha just staring a hole through Hazael. He fixed his gaze steadily upon him until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And Elisha answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire and their young men you will kill with the sword and their little ones you will dash to pieces and their women with child you will rip up. This was the anointing that Elijah was supposed to accomplish. This is what he was told to do back in 1 Kings 19.15, when he's like, Lord, if they kill me, I'm the last one left. God's comfort was, you got work to do. Go anoint Hazael, go anoint Jehu, and go anoint Elisha. And Elijah only gets to do one of those. It's because God's timing is not our timing, and God's time frame is not our time frame. It's been a while. That probably, of that event goes back into the um, the 850s, when Ahab was king, or almost... uh, you know, ten years later here, and Hazael is finally still getting around to doing this. And this is also where Second Kings can mess with you because you jump around so much. The time frames, you know, hop, you're in the eighteen you're in the eighteen forties, you're in the eight forties, you're in the eighteens, you're in the eight twenties, you're back to the eight forties, because we're telling parallel stories of Israel and Judah with a primary focus on the kingdom of Israel, but you can't just leave out what's going on in Judah. So that, And that's what you'll see right here because you get to the end and you see now in the fifth year of Joram, the king of Ahab, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then the king of Judah. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. That's like 853. So we just zoomed past to before the reign of Jehoram, king of Israel. And it just gets confusing because by the time you get to the end of that, you get this little quick little run and you end up with Ahaziah king of Judah and that's 841 so that's the end of the king the reign of Jehoram so have fun with that (coughs) um he marries by the way Jehoram marries Ahab's daughter Athaliah remember her name you'll come back to it he's evil that's why you don't really get a whole lot about him and then he's dead Chapter 9. Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to the inner room. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. This is 841. This is who ends the reign of Jehoram in Israel. Jehu will reign until 798. This was the work that Elijah was told to do in 1 Kings 19:16, right after 1915 when he was supposed to anoint Hazael, which again is basically a decade prior. A work that Elisha or that Elijah does not complete. So, Jehu's anointed king and he just Jehu's job description is simple and can be summed up in one word pain. Jehu brings pain because that's why he's anointed. Now, again, why is he anointed? Pain. By whom is he anointed? God. When God ordains you to bring pain and you have completed bringing pain, what should you do, Christian? You should recognize that the reason you're king is because of the work of Yahweh, that He is the one who has created you. He is the one who has upheld you. He is the one who has redeemed you. He is the one who has used you as an instrument of judgment. He is the one who alone will be faithful to you. He will accomplish all that He has planned. Therefore, you should walk faithfully with and in Him. Those are our foundations. For Christian living. That's what should happen. And part, again, of the lesson of 2 Kings is that <clears throat> these are proofs that there is a God in Israel, and yet the human condition is so vile and broken that it just doesn't work. So Jehu, he's anointed king, he brings judgment on Ahab, he kills Jehoram, he kills Ahaziah. Um, You fast forward, he wipes out 70 sons of Ahab. He kills Jezebel. He wipes out the Baal worship. He does all of this. Thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. However, as for the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Sorry, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel, that were at Dan, the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall, shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. There's just no other way to put it. That's that's frustrating. Now again, there he's gonna rule from 841 to 798. He's gonna execute this. Now at the end of that, you're gonna get hey, um Jehoahaz succeeding Jehu, which is again they a co-rule. From 814 to 798, see, all of the rest of the acts that Jehu did and all his might are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him at Samaria. So, this is where it gets real fun. Now you get Athaliah, queen of Judah. Yeah, you heard me right. Why? Because Ahaziah was killed in 841, so we have just rewound back to 841. So we've gone from the end back to the beginning of the reign of Jehu. He has killed Ahaziah, and now we're seeing some issues. So in that power vacuum, the daughter of Ahab, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead. She rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Way to go, Grandma. But... Jehoshabah, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he is hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah was reigning over the land. Why? Because we're redeeming what house? Not Ahab's house. David's house. Remember, the king will come from David. So Athaliah is there from 841 to 835. So at the end of her seven years, Jehoiada sent and brings the captains of the hundreds of the Karites out of the end of the guard and brought them to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. Dun, da da da. This is who we know as, uh, Joash. He's king He is set up, Athaliah is executed, Joash becomes king from 835 to 796. He follows Jehoiada the priest. Even though the people are idolaters, he is not, and he is not an evil king. The temple is repaired, but then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king. Am I in the right chapter? No, I'm not in the right chapter. Hold on. But there it is. Hazael, king of Aram, went up and fought against Gath and captured it, and Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem. Jehoash, king of Judah, this is Joash. I know the names are fun, took all the sacred things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, king of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred things, and all the gold that was found among the treasuries and the house of the Lord and the king's house, and sent them to Hazael, king of Aram, and he went away from Jerusalem. See, you were so close. We were so close to doing good. And then what happens? This is part of the lesson of this book is that the brokenness of this people the destruction that they wrought, the problems that are going on, are because of sin. And even when you get a good one, he's not good enough. In other words, he's a decent king, but he's not the good king, Shiloh, who is to come. He's not capable of crushing the serpent and his offspring, which is the sin and the consequences of sin. We need something better than these men who are just simply rolling around trying to figure this out as they go. Good men, though they may be as they come along, they just can't do it. And I told you we'd get through it all because that's where we're going to stop today. Now again, what are the lessons? You've heard them as we've gone through. When we have people operating according to the biblical foundations, the way God has instructed and how he has taught about himself, what do we see? We see temple work being done. We see God being faithful. We see the preserving work. And yet, we see what? The human frailty and the breakdown. Meaning what? We can't do this on our own. We need something better. We need someone better. And that is what God is building towards. That is what he is demonstrating. But he is going to ensure that he exhausts every possible human outcome and demonstration of our failure because that way we are without excuse because as you can see here in these kings lesson after lesson and they come with an excuse so God preserves them not for salvation but for judgment and in the midst of this we talk about God accomplishing and God persevering and preserving his people in the midst of all of these evil wicked kings we had good people offering sacrifice going to the temple trying to live godly lives, giving of their tithes and their offerings. And God honored that, and God respected that, and God saved those people because they were his people. In the midst of judgment, he saved them. And in the midst of saving them, he still brought judgment upon sin because he is precise and he will accomplish all that he has set out to do. And right now, as we're looking at the long arc, what he is setting out to do is point to Christ. Point to the better king, to the better sacrifice, to the better priest, to the one who will never turn to Baal, to the one who will never offer the wrong thing, to the one who will never lead his people astray, to the one who will never fail in battle, to the one who will be and is and will be. So what have we learned here today, children? That God can handle multiple things at once, whether it's in Israel or it's in Judah, whether it's in 852 or 843 or whatever. God is faithful even when we are not. And God's planning doesn't depend on us, but upon Him in His great work. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Hopefully this is useful to you and beneficial. And we are going to continue this walk because, again, learning to think through. Look at the world around you, Christian. It is not going to get easier, and it is not going to get better. But if we understand who God is what he is doing, how he is doing it, and what he has called us to do in the midst of that, we can walk faithfully. And as long as we walk faithfully, we walk triumphantly. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.